Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, episode 50. Today on the show, I have Kevin Carr, strength coach at Mike Boyle's Strength and Conditioning and co-owner of Movement as Medicine. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 50 of the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and today on the show, we have Kevin Carr. Kevin is a strength coach at Mike Boyle's Strength and Conditioning. He is also the co-owner of Movement as Medicine, uh, which is the official th uh, massage therapist of Mike Boyle's. So Kevin, not only a strength coach, uh, but also a massage therapist. He's amassed a wealth of experience in the field of sports performance and personal training at Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. He works from he works with everyone from U.S. Olympians uh, all the way down to Gen Pop, and has just a huge wealth of knowledge. Has a ton of uh, certifications and knowledge uh, that go along with it and some of the things that uh, he has been to uh, he's done like the fms S fma he's done some that i've done that i, I thought were really cool like uh, neurokinetic therapy level one and two pri he's got a good handful of others just a guy who is uh, almost like a renaissance man of, of functional the function of the human body and strength training and one of the big reasons i wanted to get kevin on not only was uh, just some of his excellent talks and answers on other podcasts, and he's been on a lot of them for a good reason, but uh, today, like this podcast being very athletic performance, sports performance driven, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of topics and dichotomies that tend to come up, especially with some of the stuff they do at Mike Boyle's, which is very uh, a lot of people look at as very injury prevention driven and and not you know going heavy and hard and being super macho, but they uh, it, a lot of those. Um, uh, thoughts and stereotypes are actually not true <laughs> and uh and kevin goes into what they do there why they do it and how it can help athletes get better and i think that it's to me it was really cool listening to kevin's answers on things like um modifying the power lifts and their approach to single leg training multi-planar training and not just looking at it from hey this is really cool for being safer in the weight room uh, and that i think for a lot of people that's not a very sexy way of putting it like Oh yeah, we're gonna make sure we don't get an athlete's hurt in the weight room. Like, it's it's one of the most critical things of the equation, but it's something no one wants to hear. But uh, or not nobody, but people are less likely to want to hear that than all oh, this. This is gonna put eight, eight inches on your vertical or or whatever performance output there is. But uh, listening to Kevin's answers and and talking about what they do from a functional perspective, it gave me a lot of great ideas just in terms of like long term development. And and we'll get into that a little bit through the course of the show today. So there's just there's just so many uh, kind of nuggets and, and really great things, great practical things you can take away right away from this episode. I know I was doing things in the weight room like the next day uh, as part of the warm up, just based off of some of the things that Kevin's doing and just really cool, really cool all around, uh, not only from lifting perspectives, training the trunk and core and, you know, single leg type work. Uh, you're going to get the full spectrum of training the athlete through this episode and what Kevin's talking about. So just uh, just another gem in the long line of, of many great guests we've had on the podcast so far. So let's get to episode 50 with Kevin Carr. All right, Kevin, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for being on today. Thanks for having me. Uh, happy to be here. 
Awesome, man. Uh, so let's kick it all off just with a little bit of your background. Uh, I know a lot of people are probably familiar with you and your work, but could you share your background in the field and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, um, my background, I'm very lucky that the first job and really the only place I've, I've really worked in this field besides like it, at all is working for Mike Boyle. Um, I, mean, I mean, if I don't really count Gold's Gym for a year as like an 18-year-old, um, as, as me working in the field, but, uh, I'm very fortunate that like my first internship experience that I got at about 19 years old was, um, was at MBSC. Um, and I've just been lucky to, to have stayed there since. So I've worked as a, a personal trainer and a strength and conditioning coach there, um, and taken various roles, um, in management and, and coaching there. And, um, then about, Six years ago, went through massage therapy school and have since opened up a uh, movement and rehabilitation clinic at MDSC called Movement is Medicine. So, um, yeah, most of my uh, history can be condensed pretty quickly just because I haven't had that many other jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been definitely uh, getting very good at doing uh, at, at working in, in that niche there. And it's such a great place to work, too. Uh, and then you mentioned you're doing manual therapy. Uh, this is probably a really broad question, but it's always interesting to me just because there's, it does seem, and, and maybe this is just me kind of jumping in on, on this idea and these theories in the last few years, but it does seem like that at least the principles of manual therapy uh, and then co the connections and some things within is really working its way into the strength and conditioning profession or uh, training profession. And how does being a manual therapist help your strength coaching? Um, it's, it's beneficial and that it just lets me help more people. Like it doesn't necessarily make me a better strength coach as much as it lets me help people more. Like my clients, I, I'd have clients come in and they just have nagging issues that like I would be able to, I, I'd see them and I'd say, okay, I have to refer you out to either a massage therapist or a Cairo or some sort of medical professional, a PT. Um, and, and I still do a lot. I still refer out a lot of people. Um, but if there were some things that I'd be able to help them with that I think, okay, you can come see me and I can, I can work on your hip and then we can get your hip stronger. So you don't end up back in this situation again. That was, um, an ideal, uh, situation for us. And, um, so when Brendan and I went, both went back to school at the same time, um, and started, um, our movement clinic there, it was a really a natural fit at MBSC just cause we have a huge, body of athletes there, both adults and general population and, um, high school, college professional athletes that, that, you know, needed work. So, um, it was kind of a natural fit. And, um, I think this is all on the same continuum, whether it's, you know, fixing someone's mobility or dealing with some sort of, uh, motor control issue and nagging, nagging discomfort that they have. I think it all leads back to them doing fitness work. Right. And, um, the, the big thing we stress people when they come in to see us is, you know, like we're going to start spending maybe a lot, little bit more time on the table working through some um, connective tissues issues, doing manual therapy, but the, the end game is always you training in the weight room. Well, whether that was what you thought you were going to get or not, now that's what's going to keep them from being on my table more. So it, uh, it just gives us another tool in the toolbox. Yeah, yeah, and at the end of the day, training, like giving someone a training session is, is definitely so huge and, and, and the most important thing. Would you say that, um, like, using like tools, like being a, someone who can put your hand, get your hands in the tissue. Uh, what's your take on using tools? So lacrosse balls and foam rollers and those types of things. I mean, if I can give someone an option to be able to help themselves without me, then that's great. Like in, I, I don't think, I think some people put maybe too much stock and some people put too little stock, um, in, you know, soft tissue tools. Right. I think there's some people who are like, oh, well, you know, it doesn't do what we think it does or they have all these ideas like it's going to make them slower, make them too mobile or make them weaker. That's one side of the, the coin. And then there's some people who think they can fix everything with a roller and a lacrosse ball. And that's obviously not true either. But you realize there's some people who've never even used a foam roller and they're coming in with like a stiff, sore hip. Like you can make a pretty big difference if you've never done that before, <laughs> you know. And I think that just giving people the basic tools to take care of their own health, like here you come in, you've never even seen a roller before. I give them out in our office all the time because if you can take that home and spend 10 minutes a day rolling, um, that, that might make a pretty significant difference in your quality of life. Um, and it's not necessarily a huge intervention and it's, it's fairly cheap. So, um, I think it's great. Um, I just think just like anything, you want to make sure you apply it correctly and teach your clients to apply it correctly, um, to help them. And then the same thing goes for exercise. Um, like I said, when people come, 
to see us. There's some people who just think of us as a massage business. And now we've done a very good job. I think, you know, having that initial conversation saying, Hey, this isn't just a massage. This isn't, you know, like the, I mean, we do general massage work, but this isn't, if you're coming here with a problem, that's not what you're going to get. We want to teach you how to exercise either with us or on your own so that you can manage your health correct, like correctly and um, not end up back in here. Um, so I think it's always just empowering the client to, to understand how to use these things correctly, whether it's a foam roller or lacrosse ball or, you know, a dumbbell in the gym, you know? Yeah. And I imagine too, being able to, I mean, therapy, just therapy alone probably isn't that amazing at helping bring people back. You really have to have that exercise patterning behind it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they, they are in here in the first place because they weren't fit enough to do something and like fit is specific to whatever their activity is. Maybe that's just them going to work and sitting in their chair, or maybe it's a recreational sport or a professional sport or what have you. They, their, their tissue or their joints could not, you know, endure the stress that they had to endure. And that, then now we're here, right? So making, giving them that explanation. And then sometimes the light bulb kind of goes off like, Oh, okay. Now, now I understand um, that, that I could build some tolerance to, to whatever it is was got me here in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so moving more into some of the training, like training ideals, I know, uh, Mike Boyles is certainly, uh, know what the term exactly, maybe, uh, famous for the ideas of on single leg training and, and probably a lot of, uh, probably a lot of fact and fiction and fiction too, along like what people's perceptions are on, on, on how much to do and what, but what's your take on ideas and thoughts on applying, you know, single leg versus double limb training in athletes? Yeah, I think that there's some people that think if you come into our gym that it's just a bunch of, uh, it's like a circus act, like a bunch of people balancing on one leg on a, yeah. on a Bosu ball, but that's actually not the case. But yeah, I mean, he, it, it's definitely a huge part of our programming, and it's one of those things that now that I, I've been there for a while, to me, just seems really obvious. Like we, we live our life mostly on one leg, so we should spend a lot of time training on one leg. Um, we, we definitely have a balance, though. Like we teach everyone to squat mostly goblet squat. We teach most of our athletes to front squat as a means to teach them to the Olympic lift. Um, and we do uh, trap bar deadlifting, kettlebell deadlifting fairly frequently. So I think the one thing we always try to tell people is like, we still develop bilateral strength as a foundation for, for just about everybody. Um, but I think a long time in our community for in athletic development and fitness, when a lot of weightlifting culture comes from powerlifting, right? And comes from bodybuilding. So you use the tools that they use. And for the, for powerlifting, obviously, you're training for the squat or you're training for the deadlift. But then we kind of, if we're always taking those tools, we kind of lose sight of what we need to train for, for sports performance and for fitness. And I think ultimately to keep people healthy um, in their sport, like you need to develop, you know, single leg stability um, in, in the all the things that come with that, right? Because take them out of the sagittal plane and, and develop th their hips on one leg and develop their quads on one leg and de develop their core stabilization on one leg. Um, so it's a huge, huge part of our system. And then also for general population, um, it's really just about, you know, always balancing risk reward as well. Like if you have people, um, I don't see a reason to have a, you know, uh, a middle-aged uh, adult, adult athlete like general pop you know, loading heavy back squats when we could have an option to have them do a split squat or a single leg squat. So we, um, we definitely work it in. Um, and I think we, it's a, a lot of, uh, best bang for your buck with, without a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of risk involved. So it's, uh, it's definitely a huge part of our training. Yeah. The way I kind of think about it when you mention it that way, like using more of a hex bar deadlift instead of a standard bar deadlift or a front squat and goblet squat instead of a back squat, you're taking the, the common lifts. You're just moving the, the center of mass around just a little bit to make it a little bit more favorable for injury prevention. And it's not like moving the center of mass of the bar that much. is going to have this huge impact on performance, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was in a discussion the other day with um, a coach and they, they couldn't understand why we straight bar deadlift uh, with our athletes. And, you know, I, I can't on the other side of the coin, I can't understand why you wouldn't trap our deadlift if you weren't training a power lifter. I don't see you don't lose anything um, in the in the motion. I, not that I could understand. And I mean, I used to be a powerlifter, like I've, I've straight bar deadlifted for a long time. But just because I like that or I might be good at that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best option for the people that are in the gym. 
um, when you have a lot of bodies, um, like we might have up to a hundred people training in one time in the gym, not in one group, but totally, it just, it makes it easy to teach lifts to people, um, minimizing risk and still being able to get them strong and, and make it easy for the coaches to, to, you know, do their job. So I think it's just the best tool for the job. And there's a lot of things like that. Same with goblet squat. Like if we can start someone by teaching them the goblet squat rather than putting a bar on their back, I feel like that's uh, kind of a no brainer. Um, and, and I think where a lot of coaches, um, miss the mark is they always, they, they can't think out of the powerlifting box. Um, when it comes to general population, it comes to sports performance. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Yeah, I've, I've felt too. And I've thought this for a little while is like when you move from a front squat to a back squat or from a trap bar to, uh, the bar at your shins, one of the biggest factors is that I think your your low back and spinal erectors get a little, have to have a little more strength, and which is cool mm-hmm. if you're a power lifter. I I've heard I think Pavel uh, Satsley said like the low back is is like a power lifter's um <laughs> like glutes or abs. I, I God, I'm gonna butcher his statement, but it's really important. But I I feel like for athletes, well, it's it's good to be strong, but it's also good to be strong in a distributed manner <laughs> and. And mm-hmm. I've looked at it that way as well. It's it's interesting that you, you just mentioned that. I, I actually didn't know exactly how you guys uh, adjusted those power lifts at Mike Boyles. But, I mean, it makes perfect sense, uh, not only with, like, injury prevention, but just kind of athletic distribution of the muscles as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then, like, on single leg training, I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, lowest system load. Like, if I can, if I can have someone do a single leg squat, right – and maybe they, they weigh, maybe they're 200 pounds, right? And then they have 40 pounds of weight vests, right, on, which is a very real thing. Maybe they have two five-pound dumbbells. So what's that, 50 pounds of external load? And it's really hard for them for eight. Rather than have them have to back squat 400-plus pounds, now I, I, that's more system recovery for them. So if I can get more bang for my buck, right, and then train again sooner and not have them have to be like, have their CNS crushed and ha- have them be sore and me- maybe have a sore back, things like that from having to be under a heavy load. I just think that that's a win. With that said, I think that you want to develop some foundational strength through, you know, deadlifting and, you know, we teach our athletes to front squat and hang cl- from hang clean, things like that. But if we can get more output with less load, I think that's kind of a no brainer. Yeah. I've heard that from a lot of really good coaches and it's something I've always taken as well, especially in the last three years. And especially in working with like aquatic athletes who's uh are mm-hmm. not known for like having the most robust uh and strong vertebral column uh and, and for a reason too uh, i mean they need to be really mobile through through there but mm-hmm. um yeah doing doing more with less has just been something i've been thinking about uh, a lot and i guess yeah what better way to do that than uh single leg movement though one of the real reasons we do single leg training is we also we want to think about longevity especially for a lot of our athletes like as they get older the answer isn't always you know putting more load on it's you know we want to think about getting them to the next paycheck like we have some guys who have been training with us you know they've been with Mike since they were in college and now they're professional hockey players or or professional football players and they're in their they're in their mid 30s um getting up there they've been playing for a long time and you know they take a beating throughout the season right so to have them come back and to just load, 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 you know, we're realizing that like we're still grinding on them, right? So if we can just keep them healthy, keep them to as strong as they need to be. So if we can do the job with less cost, that might mean they get another season or two. They might get another contract, and that that's a big difference in their life, right? And that's why ultimately they're training with us in the first place. So we always want to think: Is this the best choice? And whenever we build programs. We're always thinking, okay, what's the highest reward with the least amount of risk and what's going to make them feel good and also be able to help them perform, get them as strong as they need to be, not necessarily as strong as possible because it's not always the answer. And again, I think a lot of us get into this field because we like lifting weights. Like that's, I started lifting weights because I want to look good and I want to be strong, but that's not necessarily why everyone comes and sees you. Um, so we're always, always just making that decision to think what's going to provide the best longevity for the people who come see us, whether that's an athlete or an adult client. Yeah. On the topic of uh, longevity, too, I I think it's interesting, like the long term developmental implications of that type of thing. The idea and I've talked about this with a couple previous podcast guests, but the idea just because you could give an athlete the most intense thing now doesn't mean that's a good idea for the sake of them being at a peak uh, or being able to 
be at a like their highest ability and even like sprinting or jump jumping ability like in track and field later like in their mid 20s if you wanted someone to peak in their mid 20s and you wanted to use something that's a little lower intensity right now because you didn't want to um didn't want to load up their spine i think that's interesting to me at least yeah Yeah, i think it's just a it's a bigger picture than than just thinking okay let's put the most load on the bar that we can today and um i that's it once coaches start to think that way you're gonna have athletes that are healthier and actually probably performing longer and having longer careers yeah um and another uh thing i was uh interested in single leg training and and I'm glad I wanted to ask you this because I know that you're well versed in single leg training ideals and athletes who do a fair amount of it. And um, so I've heard coaches mentioning the idea of like uh, you could if you did like all single leg training. And this has been a topic in the track community as well as what you know track is on one leg or jumps are on one leg. So what, why don't you just train only on one leg? Uh, Mm-hmm. But I've heard coaches mention that, like, if that's all you did, that you could have more trigger points in, like, your glute meat or TFL or something from doing too much of that. I'm sure you guys probably have a fair balance uh, what, where you are at. But have you ever seen anything like an athlete who could really crush pistols and skater squats and stuff like that? Do they, do they ever have, like, a different profile from what you're doing on them than somebody who might be more, do I guess, a more traditional program, if you will? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, like you said, the key word you said is balance. And I think you did anything too much from a total volume standpoint. Like, say, I was doing pistols like multiple days a week or I was doing high, high volume in a sense that like I was having them do a bunch of sets and a bunch of reps. Then I think you, you could run into problems just from a tissue overload standpoint. But just the same as you might if you benched multiple days a week and, and had a lot of volume or if you back squatted a bunch of days a week. So I think that that any like anything, and I, I always come back to the balance. Like, you know, is is how much is too much, right? Um, I haven't never really seen that much of that, but I think if you put people into positions um, that are if they're not ready for it, like we, I think having a solid progression model, specifically, um, like our athletes will split squat um, for a few weeks. And they and they load split squat, and then they might go to rear foot elevated split squat, and then we also might on another day go towards um, like true single leg squatting on another day, right? Um, but developing them first with a split squat, so they're not you know bottoming out um, on on a, what you would call a pistol or a true single leg squat, um, and and using a strategy that's um, less than optimal, then then I think you can kind of avoid those things. So um, just I think balance throughout the program, not not like overloading them with a lot of volume um, and making sure they're ready for that exercise. And then you can avoid um, situations like that where you have like trigger points or, or, or issues that, that come up like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, balance is just so key. And, and obviously I think that I would imagine people who are talking about getting insane uh, loaded down trigger points in these areas that maybe are, taking things to the extreme a little bit too far not and not following minimal effective dose type principles with their work and and i mean if you you could probably create yeah trigger points anywhere by by being a little bit too silly in your loading volumes yeah and actually what's kind of interesting too is so i actually have a lot of runners um that come to see me whether they're just recreational people or people who are are serious triathletes and things like that um which is interesting because it's i've never done any of that competitively it's one of those niches that kind of found me but um i i find people who don't have good single leg stability tend to have that typical glute tfl um dysfunction um because they don't have lateral hip stability so i spend actually a lot of time when i see people who come in with those issues um after i might treat them with some manual therapy developing single leg strength doing things like split squat single leg squat single leg deadlift um what have you um, so it's kind of a, it's kind of interesting cause I actually went in my treatment of those things. That's the main strength thing I actually focus on. Yeah. Do you have any favorite, uh, like favorite ways that you apply a single leg movement for some of these athletes? Um, so we have a, a, a progression model for all of these that that's worked really well. So for instance, um, single leg deadlifting is, I love that exercise. And what you see with a lot of people is an inability to square their hips, right? So if you, you look at a lot of single leg deadlifts, you go in a gym, you see them like opening up their hips. They're not able to sit, um, into their hip and get internal rotation and actually use that glute. So we start with like a cross reaching single leg deadlift. So having them actually reach for a cone 
um, that would be lined up with the leg they're standing on, they're reaching with their opposite hand, right? So if I'm standing on my right, I'm reaching with my left. And that's like the way we start to teach people how to you know, sit into that hip. And that's been really effective for us developing hip stability. And then we'll start to load from there, go to a one dumbbell single leg deadlift, then to a double dumbbell or kettlebell single leg deadlift and build a load from there. But I think it's really important also with single leg squat and split squat for them to be able to really sit into that hip. And that's one of the main things we focus on with pretty much everybody um, that comes in with us. Yeah. Well, that's cool, man. Uh, do you do any partial stuff, like partial, like for like something that's tough, like pistol squats? Uh, do you guys do any partial range single leg stuff? That's single, the like a single leg squat, a true one. That's really the only lift that we'll do that's like a partial, right? Um, pretty much everything else, like the standard is to parallel. So split squat, we want to see parallel femur. Goblet squat, we want to see parallel femur. Um, but single leg squat, it can be really tough. Like try, true triplanar control of your femur and your pelvis, negotiating that for someone who's never done it, it can, can be really, really difficult. So like I said, we might start them with split squat for a few weeks, especially if it's like a, a younger, newer athlete or an adult. Um, and then once they have some proficiency there, we might go to single leg squat. We might have them start um, going to like a bench or a box that's 18 inches with an ARX on top. And if they're standing on flat ground, for an average person, um, that uh, that's going to be just above parallel, right? Um, and and teaching them, okay, we don't want to see the valgus, we don't want to see you open your hips. I want to see that you can you can line yourself up, and then we can start to pull away um, the pad or the box to a lower height, so they they can get a little bit more depth. Um, yeah, that's that's how we pretty much start with uh, with most everybody. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, pistol squats are, they're tough to get down all the way under under control. Like I find that yeah, a lot of people can do them, you know, with their butt to a bench at about two thirds of the way down, not too bad. But that last three, four inches for a lot of people is, especially if they have any ankle or foot issues, is, is quite a quite a struggle. So, uh, yeah. yeah it and just, we're not really ever doing um, like a pistol in the true sense of what people look at, like people like holding the kettlebell to the chest and going, you know, ass to heel with the legs straight out. We, we pretty much always squat to a box, whether it's a goblet squat, we always squat to like a 12 inch box. That's going to take the average height person just below parallel. Um, that way they have a depth marker. And I think again, decisions to minimize risk. Um, it, what I love for everyone to be able to squat perfectly with a flat back below parallel. Yes. Is that reality? Probably not. So with single leg squats, like I said, we're having them eventually squat below parallel, but maybe only a few inches below parallel and just using that box as a, a bottom end, not to bounce off, but for them to just have a, a depth marker and then come back up from there. Um, again, just because a lot of people, if I let them bottom out and bounce at the bottom, then sometimes you end up uh, with knee issues, you end up with low back issues where they're, they, they're all hunched over. So we always try to avoid that. Um, so never really a pistol in the true sense of the word, but just like a real single leg squat to a box. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds good. Uh, it's it's always interesting to me to hear kind of how people are applying some of this more single uh, functional. Uh, I, I I mean, I almost don't like to call it functional because I think that carries some people. The connotations behind that for some people, I think it, it doesn't deliver the right message. But that that type of training and and how to apply is it's really cool. I was going to ask you a question as well, just on like the balance between uh, barbell stuff and single leg stuff is. They're kind of a kind of a set formula, generally speaking. You guys apply towards athletes. Are there some athletes you really give quite a bit of of barbell based work to, like cleans and the uh, hex deadlifts and front squats in a greater proportion versus the single leg type stuff? Or is there some athletes you just keep away from the barbell? What's your what's your take on how you balance some of that out? Uh, the majority of our athletes, like college, high school, um, professional ones who are younger, spend a lot of time learning barbell fundamentals like we teach the majority of our athletes with the exception of some um, like we don't necessarily do hand cleans with baseball players when we can use swings right um, but a lot of them like hockey players football players soccer players lacrosse like we pretty much the majority of them we teach how to olympic lift um, i think it's a foundational thing that they should learn so we have a progression to teach them to front squat and eventually teach them the olympic lift from that uh, we teach them how to bench press. Um, I think it's important. Our, our kids as young as 13, they're in there uh, learning how to bench press properly, teaching them to deadlift, starting with a kettlebell and then progressing 
to the trap bar once they've developed um, some form and some stability. Um, so yeah, I mean, we spend a lot of time uh, teaching that stuff, but then also, you know, teaching them the single leg stuff and the things that might be looked at more as functional training, right? So there's, again, there's a balance. Um, and like I said, some athletes, uh, we don't bench press our baseball players. We don't typically Olympic lift our baseball players. So just some better tools for them. Um, or people who have hit injury history, maybe we avoid um, certain barbell lifts. But I think it is a fundamental thing um, for people to learn, um, especially younger athletes, um, how to handle a barbell um, and, and work their way around it, especially because if they're not going to be with us when they go to college, like we have high school kids, our number one thing is to prepare them to go lift in college. And they might not get the instruction that uh, we would deem to be uh, appropriate or necessary when they get there. So I think part of keeping them healthy is – you know, teaching them how to do things correctly so that they can survive being in a professional setting or a college setting or being in another gym um, and they can know some fundamentals. Yeah, that's such a great way to go about thinking of it is I, I think that there's so many people in physical prep who would almost look at like, and I probably I see this more in the track and field realm, but they're like, oh yeah, my kid ran this for me and then they went to college and they ran slower or something and like, I think there's a really cool, at least, and that's not everybody, but I think there is a cool um, humility in that and what you're doing too. Like, it's like, look, like we are trying to prepare you to be your best uh, when you leave us and, and preparing in those lifts in that direction is, is a really interesting, cool uh, concept to me. Yeah, it's a great feeling when you have kids who like, one, they really enjoy lifting and they take it up. Like, in, in, one, it's like a lifetime thing. Like, forget sports. If they continue to exercise when they get out of here and they know how to kettlebell swing they know how to squat and they know how to bench you gave them tools for their life and that's that's the real big picture i think for a lot of them um but for them to be able to go to school and really understand the lifts and really be able to take care of themselves and, and survive in a setting um that maybe it's not ideal for lifting i think you're, you're 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 setting them up to to be responsible um for their own performance and their own health so yeah that's cool what kind of um what kind of escalation are you guys doing in terms of intensity in those main barbell lifts with your high school populations. I mean, I, I'd imagine you aren't really cranking it up too hard. Uh, what's how, I mean, how, how much intensity do you dial in, in, in that sector? Um, well, we're fortunate. We have a lot of kids who start with us when they're pretty young. So like 12 or 13 is like the young, the bottom end. And we, it's almost like lifting class with them. Um, and so our coaches, we have a couple of guys who run those middle school groups, Steve Bigelow, one of our coaches, one of them who does like an outstanding job. Um, really just, we don't really worry about load at all, um, for the younger kids. It's like literally like lifting class. Like we start with like a 15 pound bar and they'll just do a whole bunch of cleans till they look perfect. A whole bunch of front squats. Till they look perfect. Um, and a whole bunch of pushups or, or bench press, just getting fundamentals. Once I can look at the group and he can look at the group and say, wow, these kids get it. And the, the bar might not have anything on it. I don't really care. Um, then we'll start to focus on intensity. So we go from like a, a movement practice scenario to um, then we'll start to, to think about putting load on the bar. And even still, we might just start with like things like three sets of eight again, because I want them to just get more repetition, not necessarily because I want volume for hypertrophy. Um, and then we can start to look to, to drop, to bring the intensity up, drop the reps down. And we kind of think about like one max set at the end. So, with a lot of our athletes, once they start to get stronger, it's similar to that five three one approach. If you're familiar with Jim Wendler's kind of loading protocol, where mm -hmm. it might be a, a, a workup set that's light, a medium set, and then one last set where they, you know, kind of rep out as much as they can um, with good form, obviously, um, and then leave it there. And then next week we just go up a little bit, right? So it's always a little bit less sub-max. So we leave a little bit of room for them to get stronger and they're not missing reps. And a lot of our athletes, since they're seasonal, you can continue to load them like that for a long period of time um, without any you know, special periodization. Like, like people always want to hear like, oh, are you using this Russian squat program or this or that? But for a lot of your athletes that come see you, no matter if they're high school or college, they still have a low training age, right? So you can continue to load them and get them stronger with you know, submax loading. And as long as you're just continually to add a little bit of weight to the bar each week. Yeah. That sounds like a great way to do it. Uh, Kevin, what is, uh, what's your philosophy on multiplanar work? So along the lines of, I guess, fun of functional training, uh, your philosophy on multiplanar, triplanar and the balance between that and then the typical sagittal plane movements, like, uh, 
the, sing, the single leg, uh, single leg squats, deadlifts, um, and, and that mm-hmm. whole realm. Is that something, is the multiplanar stuff that you're really like loading up, uh, or how does that fit in? Is it, is it largely in the warm up? Is it on the tail end? Is it ever in the meat and the potatoes section? How do you go about mm-hmm. implementing that? Um, well, so we spend a lot of time in the warm up, you know, having them move multiple directions. We have like our warm up days are kind of organized and linear and lateral days. So, um, like we'll focus on linear days working on, you know, linear skipping, linear acceleration work, um, linear crawling, all of those things, lateral days, we'll do lateral movement work, um, lateral sprint agility work, lateral plyometric work. Um, so we organize our movement prep. Um, at least over the four-day summer schedule, where that's how a lot of our athletes are in um, in the off-season, um, linear, lateral, linear, lateral. So we can focus on linear skills and lateral skills. Um, and that said, also with our adult clients, like I want them to be have what I call like movement centration, right? Can you go backwards? Can you go forwards? Can you go sideways? Can you rotate? All that's important, whether you're an athlete or you're an adult, right? Because the world's happening all around you. So we're always focusing on multi-directional work, um, in the warmup. And then with the lift, um, I would, I don't even really consider single leg deadlifting or single leg squatting sagittal work in a sense that set the pick the once you pick one foot up off the ground, everything changes, right. Um, from a stability standpoint, um, you start to get these diagonal patterns and these, um, lateral subsystems working that although like, yes, you're moving the joints in a sagittal plane, the stability is kind of happening transverse, and frontal as well. Whereas if you're on two legs, um, you know, deadlifting or squatting, it's much more sagittal stability in the sense that you have a bilateral base, right? Um, so I think mixing in single leg work essentially starts to give you multi-planar stability because you you have to stabilize in much different planes than you do if you're on two legs, right? Um, we do do some frontal plane. Um, training as well, like lateral squatting or, or people might call it a lateral lunge, but we typically keep our feet on the ground and we lateral loading the hips and adductors that way. Um, as well as incorporating slide boarding, which is, um, unique in that it's frontal plane kind of conditioning work, um, and lateral sled pulling. So I think, especially for some of your athletes who cut a lot, like you see soccer players, you deal with a lot of groin injuries or lacrosse where you a lot of cutting and multi-directional movement and hockey players who get a lot of um, adductor and hip stress, it's, it's important to kind of address everything. And again, it might seem repetitive. We're coming back to the idea of balance, like we had mentioned earlier, but I think keeping a a thread of all these things in your program, um, all the time, um, is really important. You're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster. Yeah, I agree. I like what you said, uh, about the single leg stuff being multiplanary, actually, and, and as you described it, I'm instantly thinking, yeah, that's not. Yeah, I, I originally asked as a sagittal plan. I was like, yeah, that's definitely not, because I was just even thinking about uh, athletes trying to do a pistol squat, and when they can't do it, the first thing that usually happens is they kind of twist out of the bottom. You know, they it's they they lose the, st- the stability in all the planes, and they and they twist out of it. Uh, that all the anti um, anti rotation, the transverse plane, and those types of things. So it makes awesome mm-hmm. sense. It almost uh, gives a different light to doing those exercises and and tying them to actual movement. Yeah. No, it's uh, – I always think, yeah, if you think about what could go wrong when they do it, then you can see where they don't have the stability in, in, the, in the other planes. Um, and then the same goes for core work. Like we're pretty much doing anti-rotation, anti-lateral flexion, anti-extension, anti-flexion, working those multiplanar core things in as well. So we're, we're kind of keeping a balance in all of our types of movements, whether it's movement prep and plyometric and sprinting, or if it's strength work. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that sounds good. Yeah. I'm, I'm also thinking now too of, uh, I'm like, man, how did I forget all this stuff? Maybe it's too early in my time. My brain isn't woken up yet, but like step ups too, at least in the track and field community often kind of touted as improving frontal plane stability and that hip hiking and the ability to, mm-hmm. to stabilize the pelvis there. So I'm like, man, what did I, what am I talking about? Uh, <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, well, that's cool. I, I, I enjoy your, your thoughts on that. And uh, another question I had, well, you talked a little about lateral work and, and mixing lateral work with linear work and alternating that. But what's, um, what's some of your favorite uh, 
like obviously it's a progression to get to everything but what's your kind of favorite expression of lateral speed and ability uh in the work that you guys are doing like an athlete that can move well laterally what what are some things that they can do really well uh in for you in the weight room or, or in the agility type stuff you're doing yeah one of the fundamental things we start to teach is basic crossover um how do you get your hips crossed over? How do you get a knee driving across? Um, and then getting them to be able to stop and understand shin angles to go back the other direction. Like the, the fundamental thing we really teach is, is shin angles. You see a lot of athletes um, who try to change directions and their body's going one way, but their shins are pointing the other way, right? And that's one, how you get people injured, but also um, you're not, you're not going to be able to, you know, you're going to get beat on the field if you, if you don't understand shin angles. So we teaching them how to transfer their weight, which way the shins go, how to do a basic crossover and stick and then crossover reactive. Um, we spend a lot of time with that. And then we kind of transition that into a, a crossover to sprint in a lateral sprint progression. So like I said, we have linear and lateral days and on linear days, we work on basic linear acceleration, um, shin angles there as well, but you know, how do they get their momentum forward and how do they sprint? And then on the lateral days, we'll progress to like lateral sprinting progression. So having them start at an angle and then open up and sprint and, uh, and build acceleration that way. Um, so we spend a lot of time there and then that'll naturally kind of transition into us having them take that into conditioning, right? So having them do shuttles where they have to take that lateral sprint development that we kind of taught in a drill and then take it into their energy system development work where they're, it's going to start to translate to them doing it on the field and in real game like conditions. Yeah. So lateral speed in the game really being more of a function of the ability to to get in a hip turn and get hit those proper shin angles more so than some of the shuffling and lateral squatting and lateral plyometrics. Uh, that would be more yeah, of a key that, movement. Yeah. And like that, and those things like the lateral strength and the lateral plyometrics, those are foundational pieces for them to do that. But then, yeah, you have to be able to transition and then also fatigue them a little bit and shuttles and see, okay, can you do this? If you're running a 150 yard shuttle and you've done six or seven of them, can you still do this? on the sixth or seventh one and, and still look good because that's going to be them in the game in the third, fourth quarter or whatever sport that they play, being able to still have those mechanics. And then that's one, how you win, but that's how you stay healthy. So, um, all kind of coming together, um, at the end there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's just, that's awesome insight. And I really, uh, that's something that I'll definitely keep with me, uh, especially as for me as a track background and, and quality staying important. That's not something that I've often thought about in, in team sports and fatigue and, and, and agility com combining those. It's almost like a, a more advanced way of, of teaching a longer sprint and track in, in a way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I like that. Okay. I got one more question for you, Kevin. And uh, that's uh, maybe a little bit more of a general one, but it's something that I feel like as I've kind of gone through the ranks and seen some different schools of thought on it, I, I just like asking people this question because it comes up like a lot, almost almost every time you're assessing an athlete, I feel like in some way. But uh, what's your approach to thoracic spine mobility development and uh, abilities there? Oh, that's like there's one thing that you we spend a lot of time on um, with general pop and with our athletes. You see some stiff T-spines. Um, I mean, the big thing is like incorporating – exercises where they're going to have to use it. Um, I like regular T-spine mobility drills, like a kneeling T-spine rotation, or we do like a V-split stance T-spine rotation where you're almost in a lateral squat position, your hands are on the ground, and you're rotating. Um, we really try to focus on locking down everywhere they're going to cheat, right? So most people, um, if they have poor T-spine mobility, are going to try to substitute lumbar mobility and lumbar rotation extension for that. So and we, we do spend time with those specific drills, but then also, you know, doing things where they, they have to ha use it, right? So, like, when I have people come to me with T-spine limitations, spending time doing things like get-ups and getting them in those positions where they can roll to the elbow and extend, um, I think are really important just because they, they spend – a lot of people, if they're gen pop, spend the majority of their day hunched over a desk for 10 hours. So teaching them to get out of those positions and explore um, <laughs> some ranges uh, is really important. Um, but we spend a lot of time there, um, developing it. And I think sometimes it's like, uh, you're, sometimes you're fighting a losing battle, especially if you have people in the workforce who are, who are sitting all day, but it's sometimes keeping them neutral is, is a win cause they're not getting worse. Um, but it's something we address pretty much on a daily basis, um, whether they're an athlete or an adult. <laughs> Yeah, man. And so it sounds like your your approach is more in the based on addressing it in the transverse plane than than like arching and and 
more so than arching backward type movements or, or like a joint mobilization things on the roller. What do, what's your take on doing some yeah. of those things? Yeah, I just think when I the majority I see people do the extension over the roller, I see them do a lumbar extension over the roller. You know, it's <laughs> not necessarily a, you see them their thoracic spines on the roller, but then I see their ribs up in the air, right? Which means they're doing exactly what we don't want. They're substituting lumbar extension in for thoracic extension, and that's usually the person who has back pain and has a stiff T spine. Um, I think that if you could teach someone to be able to keep their ribs down, keep that uh, that zone of apposition, that that abdomen tense while they extend their thoracic spine, you just can't find many people who can understand that. So naturally though, if you rotate your thoracic spine, you also have to extend your thoracic spine. You can't choose to do one without the other, right? So if you're able to put them in a position where you can, we want to have their hips flexed and their lumbar spine flexed, then that takes their ability to substitute lumbar movement in away from them. And then we can really focus on um, developing thoracic mobility because like I said, they if they're going to rotate, they have to extend. So if we we want to just always try to take away the compensation any way possible. Yeah. So just finding ways to lock down those, uh, that lumbar area and then working your manipulations and, and, and active drills so that you want them to do something with the muscles, uh, get to get in those positions, basically not just sitting on a fo foam roller. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd venture to guess, like if you just gave somebody a bunch of get-ups to do every day, their thoracic mobility would probably get better over time just because of the, the force demand the daily demand for them to have to be in that position with their chest up, I think you'd start to see people with better thoracic mobility. So it's your body's going to adapt to what you put them in every day. So get-ups are one of those things that I think I have just about everybody do. Um, and then that can start to work on some of that thoracic mobility all in itself right there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sounds good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that up with another uh, fun I, – I, I call these fun general questions because I feel like they're super common. Yeah. But uh, the but low trap stuff. Do you do a lot of uh, low trap work in terms of activation, uh, working that? Uh, I feel like a lot of the people that I, in my populations I work with who have upper back stuff are almost always bad there. And I'm always just interested in I, other people's ideas and thoughts on integrating that type of work. Yeah, and – so it's one of those things where if I have someone come to me in like a uh, with a problem, so maybe in a rehabilitation situation, um, I'll I'll spend time doing more specific low trap work, like low classic low trap activation work. Maybe they're doing um, things on the Kaiser, like a pull apart or a classic a Y or something like that to get that. But then from a training, a general training perspective, I think if you're doing like good fundamental movement work teaching crawling again teaching get up i'm coming back to the same thing i sound like a get up <laughs> nut. Um, teaching them teaching them how to row and pull correctly i think you get a lot of that development so i i'm not gonna necessarily take someone out of my way like a a generally healthy athlete or an adult and be like hey we got to do a bunch of y's or a bunch of t's um but if you find some people coming from a rehabilitation standpoint who are very very weak through all of their rotator cuff low trap all of their scapular stabilizers i think it's beneficial to spend some time there um but i think good programming that's balanced again coming back to the balance thing um and coached well um if you let people do pulling exercises with bad form um you don't let them get some scapular protraction um on the front end and then retraction on the back end then you, you, you tend to miss those things but if you really coach um things like x pull downs is a big exercise we use um really well then you can start to get that trap low trap working the way that, that you want it to. So also it comes back to just sound coaching. Uh, I think of movement, you can, if you put in some fundamental strength exercises the right way, I think you kind of address those things. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds good. I like that you brought up crawling too. I feel like that's uh that's always something that's very easy to implement in the warm up across the board and, and the impact of some of those, like what would you call primal movements like that, or even or climbs and, or even like handstands and stuff that affect on the scap and the spine. That's interesting to me. I'm learning more about it and, and, but yeah, everything you mentioned, I think that's great. I, I definitely appreciate that. I think it's all great stuff. Yeah. Crawling is a pretty big piece. I think for, for everyone we put in the warm up and, and just, you know, having them for adults, like, okay, can you get up off the ground and can you move yourself on the ground if, if you fall, right? Like that's just a survival skill. Um, but then it, if you, if you crawl the right way slow and you don't always see that when you look online, um, then I think you get a lot of bang for your buck there. You get shoulder stability, you get core stability, you get cross patterning from for a neural development standpoint, which I think is really important. So again, that's another exercise that um, you, I like exercises that you get a lot of benefit 
in like you can get a lot of bang for your buck i think is always good yeah I, that's that's cool you meant uh you just mentioned slowing those crawls down i the other day actually with my one of my swim teams i was like we do crawling stuff in warm-up and i was like okay today you're gonna crawl not you know 20 meters but five meters and you're gonna do it as slow as you possibly can like slow motion and it was amazing how some people who could crawl regular speed just fine like would just fall apart once they had to actually do it slowly like you learn so much about athletes and some of their movement once you take that and make it really really slow you're listening to the just fly performance podcast brought to you by simply faster yeah what i like to do is i get you know those little like they're like kind of like the short orange cones they're like kind of circular and i'll put a tennis ball on top balance it on top of that and i'll put it on their back they're like low back and I'll say, okay, you can't let the ball fall off. Oh, I'll yeah. balance something on their back, like a, a water bottle or something light enough that it might come off and say, okay, you need to, you got to keep that on your back through the whole 10 yard crawl. Then that really slows them down, right? Because they, that the goal becomes to keep their hips still and not have that lumbering side to side crawl. Um, and more of a stealthy, uh, we call them sneaky bear. Sneaky, <laughs> sneaky bear, bear. Yeah. I've heard of yeah. scared bear going backwards. That could be the sneaky bear. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm too. I'm definitely gonna steal that one. I'll probably see that in the weight room next week. So, uh, well, that's cool. I like that a lot. Yeah, it's it's like external cueing for uh for the parameter you're trying to create, and that sounds like good stuff. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I love it. Hey, Kevin. So, if uh, people want to find you, learn more about you, or what you do, what's a what's a good place on the web to do that? Um, if you if you're looking for like daily information, things like blog posts. We do most of our um, things that we share through our Movement as Medicine Instagram. Um, that's, we pretty much put up posts a few times a week with different exercises, different thought processes about training. That's where you'll get most of that type of stuff. But um, also if you're, we have CFSC, Certified Functional Strength Coach. If you're interested about some of the courses that we teach, how we teach our uh, training at Body by Boil, the system that we use, that's, that's where we share that. And we've we're doing a lot of courses around the country um, right now. We'll be at all the Perform Better events um, over the course of the summer. So if you're interested in, in meeting us and learning about how we coach and teach, that'd be a, a, a good way to, to do that. And then we always welcome visitors at uh, Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning. We tell people that all the time. Not everyone takes us up on it, but we're, we're happy to have people come check us out in Boston. So you go ahead and do that. Shoot us an email. Let us know that uh, you'll be in town. Sounds good. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show today, Kevin. I, I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I, I love your approach to uh, strength conditioning and physical preparation. I just think it's uh, really refreshing and helpful. So thanks for everything today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening today. We really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did putting it together. Uh, we'll see you guys next week with another great guest. In the meantime, please don't hesitate to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, for any of your needs in the area of training technology, be it high-end, uh, heavy-duty, heavy hitters like the 1080 Sprint, 1080 Quantum, K-Box, uh, all the way down to simple, simple and relatively inexpensive tools for the everyday athlete like the PowerDot. And uh, just a, a cool site, great blog. Be sure to check them out. And finally, if you would and have some time, please don't hesitate to give us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you're listening to this podcast on. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, and share it with your friends if you liked it. I, I, um, I really enjoy putting these together. I think our guests are first rate. They're really what make the show. So we'll, uh, we'll see you guys again next week. Have a good one.